The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Lord, we do thank you for your wonderful grace toward us. Undeserved, unmerited favor that uh, bestows upon us above and beyond anything that we could ask or think. Father, you have provided everything in abundance, and it is our privilege to accept this free gift because that enables us to enjoy life, to develop capacity for happiness, and to appreciate all that you have for us. Now, Father, as we look at your word this morning and we begin to deal with the passages that explain to us our justification and the role of faith and the role of works and how all of these work together in such a synchronous whole, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and open the scriptures to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. Excuse me, Galatians chapter 3. Last week as we got into this section of Galatians where we have been studying the whole issue of justification by faith alone, which we took apart and analyzed in detail back in the latter part of chapter 2, And we reviewed the important principle that what the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God supplies motivated by the love of God and expressed through the grace of God. Hopefully we have inculcated that principle so that it is second nature to you now. We're going to go over it again and again and again and drive it home because we must understand the basis for our salvation because that becomes the stepping stone for motivation and moving us forward in the spiritual life. Now, the issue, just to bring us all back to where we are in Galatians, the issue that is facing the Galatian church is that of the Judaizers coming in and teaching that the not only is salvation a work system based upon obedience to a legal system, specifically in this case the Mosaic Law, not only is it a faith plus work system, but also the spiritual life is a faith plus work system. And Paul does not pull any punches. So often today we feel like pastors ought to have a certain personality and they should never be offensive and they should never say anything harsh or offend anybody or step on anybody's toes or they're always sweet and kind. And the language that Paul uses in this epistle to rebuke the Galatians is very strong language. In fact, I'm impressed with how earthy the language of Scripture is in many places and how what what simpering, pusillanimous wimps most translators are because they're afraid to put the Word of God into the common vernacular in which it was originally written. There are times when the Word of God is very strong and very harsh and is designed to grab people and uh, to get their attention. For example, here, twice in this passage, he calls the Galatians fools, absolute idiots, because they have deserted the grace of God. In chapter 1, he said that they were a curse, they were anathema, which is tantamount to saying, may you rot in hell. It was a very strong term. May, may anyone rot in hell who, who perverts the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when we come to this chapter... Last week we began with the first five chapters, and the issue there that, that Paul brings up is the issue of the spiritual life. Verse 2, what, this only one thing, this is the only thing, this one important thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by means of the works of the law or by hearing with faith? In other words, Paul sets the case. You only have two options. There's no middle ground. There's only two spheres within which you can operate as a believer. Either you're operating on the basis of works, of law, where you are trying to move yourself 
in the spiritual life, either to become saved or to move forward in the spiritual life on the basis of simple legal obedience to some system, which is no different from trying to do it yourself, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps in obedience to a legal system that any unbeliever can follow. For you see, the unique thing about this church age is that the spiritual life of the church age is a unique spiritual life. It is built upon the power of God the Holy Spirit who indwells and fills every single believer. But when we sin, we are under the influence of the sin nature. And under the sin nature, we can perform many good deeds. We can perform lots of ritual and lots of religious activities. Remember, religion is man trying to gain God's favor through his own meritorious activities, through his own works, through his own deeds. Yet Christianity is not a religion in that sense. Christianity is a relationship, a relationship based upon God doing all of the work and man accepting it. Man thinks that he can gain God's approval and God will bless him because he is so good, and that is the essence of self-righteousness and legalism. So Paul drives our attention to the issue. He paints it very clearly. There is only one, one issue. Are you being led by the Spirit? Are you being led by the sin nature? Are you begun by the Spirit in verse 3? Or are you now being perfected by the flesh? The issue then is the issue of works or faith, verse 5. Does he then who provides you with the Holy Spirit and works miracles among you do it by works of law or by hearing with faith? So he drives home the point through these questions. There are two spheres of activity, works and faith. That's the issue. What's the basis for your spiritual life? Are you moving forward by means of the Holy Spirit and by means of faith? Or are you doing it by trying to keep some law code, some superficial system of external obedience? And then in verse 6, he moves into a very critical discussion an illustration that is going to bring home the point that salvation and the spiritual life, no matter which issue you're speaking of, salvation and the spiritual life are both based on faith. And he goes back to one of the primary figures of the Old Testament, Abraham, to derive from Abraham's life a principle that undergirds everything else in the New Testament and undergirds the salvation of all peoples, Jew and Gentile alike. And he's going to quote from a passage in Genesis 15, which has been misunderstood in some ways. It has been applied, and it's, it's used, quoted three times. It's really quoted more than that, but it's quoted in three passages in the New Testament, all of which we're going to look at today. Romans 4 James 2, and our present passage in Galatians 2. And we have to go back to the Old Testament and accurately exegete the passage there in the Hebrew because it's usually mistranslated in your English versions. And because of that mistranslation, it has been poorly understood and poorly interpreted so that when you get into the New Testament, into Romans 4 and James 2, which are controversial passages, if you don't accurately understand the Old Testament situation, you will misinterpret the New Testament passages and almost end up, as some writers, as some writers do, making Paul in Galatians 3 and in Romans 4 contradict James in James 2. And you create all kinds of, of uh, distractions and problems and misunderstandings and end up in legalism and lordship salvation because of that. So let's take Galatians 6 apart and look at the details. Let me read 6 through 9 to get the context. Even so, that means that now we're going to use an illustration. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are of sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. So Paul begins his illustration that will extend down through the rest of this chapter in order to demonstrate that it is by the Spirit and by faith that has always been, that, that faith alone has always been the principle whereby the believer has advanced his spiritual life. 
In the Old Testament, they did not have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They advanced by faith alone, the use of the faith rest drill. In the New Testament, we are empowered or energized or filled by means of God, the Holy Spirit, and that is the basis for living the spiritual life. So let's understand the issue. Verse 6, he goes right to the heart of it. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Let's understand this in the Greek first, and then we'll go back and look at it in the Hebrew. starts off with a comparative adverb, kathos. K-A-T-H-O-S. Kathos is going to introduce a parallel, an analogy, an illustration. It is usually used in Greek to mark similarity between events and states with the possible implication of something being in accordance with something else and should be translated just as, just as or in comparison to. So if we translate this, just as Abraham. Abraham is the Old Testament figure. He is the father of the Jewish race. And it is, he is also the recipient of the Abrahamic covenant, which is given in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. This is what is called, in terms of ancient Near Eastern covenants, a royal grant. A royal grant differed from the other major treaty form, which was the suzerain vassal treaty form, in that this was a gracious bestowal of land, usually, by a king. You have a king here, and he has a vassal or subject down here, in this sense, God is the king, Abraham is the subject, and the king would often grant to a loyal subject a reward of land, of privilege, of power, of position. And the, the Abrahamic covenant is written or couched in royal grant terms, and royal grant loudly speaks of grace. It is unconditional. It is not something that is based on somebody's obedience, that if you do this, this, and this, then I will do this for you. It is because you have been faithful to me, I am rewarding you with this. So one of the implications that we see right away in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, being couched in a royal grant form, is that it is grace, based on grace, not upon works that Abraham has already done something to put himself in a position to receive the Abrahamic covenant. He is not expected to uh, fulfill or to receive the conditions of the covenant based on his future obedience. So just as Abraham believed God, and here we have an aorist active indicative. Aorist active indicative. Aorist tense is one of the past tense forms in the Greek, one of two, it indicates here, it looks on the action not only in terms of past time, but without respect to its uh, duration. A constitutive aorist looks at all of the action without respect to its beginning, its end, or its progress. It just sort of summarizes everything up in a whole, so you look at that event as it were as one event without respect to its, with, without respect to its duration. So it's past time, active voice, indicates that Abraham is the one who performed the action of the verb. It is Abraham who believed. It is our volition, up to our volition, to take the step of faith. So that Abraham is the one who operated on positive volition, and he believed God. The verb pistuo here is very important in the Greek, P-I-S, T-E-U-O, and is the standard Greek word translated faith, belief, trust. It is non-meritorious. This is so important to understand that faith is non-meritorious. The object of faith has all of the merit. It is God or the promise of God in terms of the spiritual life for salvation. It is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ performed all the work on the cross. He is the object of faith. We keep going over this and over this, both in our studies of John in the second hour and in this hour. Faith has all of its merit in the object. Abraham believes God. He is the one who performs the action through his positive volition. He accepts the promise of God and 
it is reckoned to him as righteousness. And this is our word, one more time, logizomai, L-O-G-I-Z-O-M-A-I. It is a word describing a certain kind of thinking. So it is a thought word. It is not an experiential word or an emotive word. It means to think, it means to consider, and it means to impute or reckon, to charge something to somebody's account. And it takes us to the doctrine of imputations. There are several imputations we have studied in Scripture, and we don't have time to go over them at this point. But this is the judicial imputation of righteousness to Abraham. The reason we have to have righteousness imputed to us is that we are born with a sin nature. To that sin nature is imputed Adam's original sin. And it is on the basis of the imputation of Adam's original sin to our sin nature at the moment of birth that is the basis for our condemnation. Now, the word condemnation is a legal term. We are legally guilty of violating God's absolute standard of perfect righteousness. And what the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God must condemn. But the love of God provides a solution through the grace of God. And that solution is that when Jesus Christ went to the cross... He bore in His body on the cross. He carried our sins, the Scripture says, so that this is a second form of imputation, a a real imputation. Our sins, every single sin that is committed in human history, was poured out on Christ at the cross. It was imputed to Him so that He paid the penalty as our substitute. As a result of that, when we accept that sacrifice as our free gift of salvation, then the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ is then imputed to the believer. Now, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament, person living in the Old Testament, Christ has not come, is saved on the basis of the future fulfillment of the promise. He looks forward. He's not saved because he believes in God. That's too general. He doesn't, he's not saved because um, he's good or because he obeys the Mosaic Law or any of those things. He's saved because he believes specifically that, God's will, that God will provide a Savior. God has promised to provide a solution to the sin problem. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15 when God promised to Adam and Eve that there would be a child of Eve who would crush the head of the serpent. And from that point on, there are promises and prophecies from one to another that build to help people understand who the Messiah will be, to identify him when he comes. And then on the basis of the work that the Messiah does, the believer will be justified. So Abraham is looking forward to the cross. And God, knowing that Jesus Christ would pay that penalty, God is going to justify Abraham and impute to him righteousness. This is the point of this passage. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed to him as righteousness. So that what happens at salvation is the believer is imputed the perfect righteousness of Christ. God the Father, who is perfect righteousness, looks on the believer now and sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. So that what the righteousness of God approves, the justice of God is now able to bless. So simultaneously with the believer's faith alone in Christ alone, He has imputed the righteousness of Christ, and then God the Father imputes to him eternal life. And the Holy Spirit creates in him, all of this happens simultaneously, and God the Holy Spirit creates a human spirit that is given to the believer so that he is born again or regenerated. He receives a human spirit, and that eternal life is imputed to the human spirit so that he can have an eternal relationship with God and he is freed from the eternal penalty of condemnation and eternal penalty of, uh, of eternal death in the lake of fire. So that in sum is the doctrine of imputation and the imputation of righteousness as the basis for our justification. Because God sees our, our righteousness He declares us righteous or just. It is a legal concept. It is not 
our practical righteousness. It is not based upon works. It is based upon faith alone in Christ alone and is contrasted with works. Faith is not the same as works. We're going to see that this morning. Now, let's understand what's the dynamic of this passage and go back to Genesis 15:6 and under so that we can understand what is going on here. Genesis chapter 15 verse 6. Let's have a little background, a little chronology to understand the dynamics of what's taking place in Abraham's life. Abraham is born in the city of Ur of the Chaldees. He is a wealthy aristocrat. It is obvious from where the things we learn about Abraham later on that he was not a commoner. He is not just sort of pulled up as just your common everyday working man, but Abraham had a high position of wealth. In chapter 14 of Genesis, we're told that there's an invasion of Canaan by uh, foreign princes from the east under the alliance with Keter Laomer. And Abraham, in order to protect his own holdings and his own investments, his own, he has cattle and sheep and goats, and he doesn't own any land. He's just sort of a, a migrant through the land, migrating through the land as God directs him. But in order to protect his own possessions... And that's important because the Bible recognizes the right of personal property and private ownership of property. And that is the basis for all freedoms and is the basis for executing a free economy. So Abraham is fairly wealthy and wealthy enough. We would put him on par with someone like uh, uh, Bill Gates, uh, Muhammad Al-Fayed, some of the other wealthy men because he has such wealth and so many employees and servants that when this foreign army made up of five, four or five uh, armies from these different city-states, this alliance under Keterleomer, that when they invade the land, Abraham gets all of his servants and everybody who's working for him together and they form an army and he goes out and defeats them in a military battle. Now that means that in comparison today, you would have to have somebody who has large enough wealth and a vast resources of of personnel to pull all of his employees together and go out and do battle. That's impressive. Abraham was not a commoner. Abraham lived in Ur of the Chaldees, and God appeared to him in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and established a, uh, a covenant with him, made three promises that relate to a future land, a seed, singular, not plural, a seed through whom all of the world would be blessed. So there are three parts to the Abrahamic covenant, a land, a seed, and a blessing, promised that he would be the father of many nations, and that through his seed there would be one nation formed through whom God would work. So that's the basis for what will be, be the Abrahamic covenant, is the threefold promise of Genesis 12. One through three. Then we have a couple of different episodes in the life of Abraham in Genesis 13 and 14, part of which is the uh, victory over the uh, invading armies of the Keterleomer alliance. And then God comes to Abraham in chapter 15. Let's pick up at verse 1. After these things, that is, after the victory over Keterleomer, the word of the Lord came to Abram. In a vision, this is before his name change, came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Once again, that takes us back to the fact that God is our protector. God is the one who is able to protect us from all outside adversity, whether it is the invasion of foreign armies or whether it is personal crises, whatever it may be, God is our shield. He says, Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord God, what wilt thou give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And the point here that Abraham, uh, that Abram is asking is, Lord, you promised me a seed. I don't have any seed. I don't have an heir. I'm 90 years old. I don't have a child. I guess Eliezer is the one that's going to get everything because in their, their culture, in their custom, if a man died childless, then his servant, the, the head of his servants, would receive all of his possessions and would be his designated heir. Then the word of the Lord came to Abram, verse 4, saying, This man, 
God doesn't even mention Eliezer's name. There's a very interesting word play on Eliezer's name and Damascus and, and the whole inheritance thing, which we won't go into. But that's why the Lord doesn't mention his name. He's not even going to, to uh, elevate this whole discussion enough by mentioning Eliezer's name. He's going to avoid the whole thing and just say, This man will not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. This is a promise that Abram, even though he is old, and even though Sarah is old, Abram, you will have a child, and through him you will have descendants. Verse 5, he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars. If you are able to count them, uh, count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said, that is, God said to him, So shall your descendants be. Your descendants, Abraham, are going to be like the stars of the sky. They're going to be innumerable, like the sands of the seashore. They're going to be innumerable. And then you read in verse 6, if you have a New American Standard, you read, Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned to him as righteousness. And that's wrong. The first word is then. That makes it sound as if his belief in this verse is a consequence of hearing this promise of a descendant in verse 5. And that's not correct. What you have in Hebrew... Is you normally normal narrative construction showing sequence is what's called a vav, which is your normal conjunction translated and. It looks like this. You normally have a vav plus the imperfect form of the verb, and in this case, the verb is amen, which is from aman, which is from what we get our word. Amen, truly, verily, I believe it. And, uh, and it's in the Hiphiel case, which is the causative case, and means trust, reliance, belief, or confidence. This is the meaning in the Hiphiel stem. You have a Hiphiel, but here you don't have a perf- an, an imperfect, which is the normal way of showing progression in a narrative. You have a vav plus a perfect, a perfect tense. Now, this is very important. If the writer, Moses, intended us to understand that verse 6 was a consequence of verse 5, then he would have used the normal sequential progression of a vav plus the hiphiel imperfect. But he doesn't do that. He makes a break in the text by using a vav plus a perfect. In other words, Moses is stepping back here, and you see the insertion by the author, Moses, of an applicational principle based on the narrative to this point. Now, this is common in Genesis. As Moses writes, see, let's go back a little bit, get some background on this. When does Moses write Genesis? He writes it when the children of Israel have come out from the bondage in Egypt and they're getting ready to go into the land that God has promised them in Israel. And they have a a future that God has promised based upon a past. And they want to know why is it that God is doing this for us and what is the basis for our future as a nation. And so all of the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all of the Pentateuch is written in order to answer that question and to give the people, a national identity. This is what God has done for you, and this is where God is taking you. So he goes all the way back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 1, and he says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then in ten short chapters, he covers over 3,000 years of history. And he leaves out a tremendous amount, and he leaves most of us with lots of questions about what went on during that time. But it's all geared to bringing everybody to Genesis chapter 12. And all of a sudden, in Genesis 12, the action slows down. And you spend many, many chapters, 10, 15, 20 chapters, about 15 chapters on Abraham. And then about 8 or 9 chapters on Isaac. And then about 8 or 9 chapters on Jacob. Three individuals, Jacob and Joseph, four individuals, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, are covered from chapter 12 through chapter 50. But in the first 12 chapters, you cover two to three thousand years of earth history. So he slows down because it's Abraham. Abraham's the point. One, chapters 1 through 11 are the prologue, the introduction, to get you to who is Abraham, where does he come from, and why does God choose him 
out of the nation. And in all of this, all these years, from, from creation, which I believe was probably around 4,000, 4,500 B.C., somewhere in that frame. I don't go with a, an ancient earth view. I think that God creates things. They, they, they looked old. When you looked at Adam, the day after he was created, you'd walk up to him and say, well, by all scientific evidence, you're about 30, 40 years old. That's how I look. He didn't create him a brand new baby. You wouldn't look at Adam and think, oh, he was just born yesterday. No, he had the appearance of age. The earth had the appearance of age, and the earth was quite different then, and some of the scientific laws that we have today functioned differently before the, before the flood. For example, in the Garden of Eden, you had four rivers that flowed out of the Garden of Eden. That is, these rivers are diverging from one central point. We don't have anything like that on the earth today. Rivers on the earth today um, converge. They flow together, but they don't. one river doesn't flow out. Four rivers do not flow out from one central river. Uh, there were many other things in the antediluvian world that were quite different. And this covered about, if it, that was in 4500, let's say 4500 B.C., just for a random figure, and Moses wrote the Pentateuch in 1440, then you've got about what, 3,000 years of history there. There were, were many records that were kept during that time that were passed on that Moses used as a basis for writing the Pentateuch. For example, Genesis 6-9 says, These are the records of the generations of Noah. And that's over and over again he refers to these sources that he used. Very famous verse, well-known verse, in Genesis at the end of Genesis chapter 2 is another one of these little... Uh, comments, editorial comments by Moses, application principles. He's talking to Jews in 1440 B.C., and he's saying, this is why you're where you are now. And he's going to make, like any good preacher, he's going to make certain applications now and then to the people's present situation based on what happened in the past. And after we have the creation of Adam and the creation of the woman... And the man looks on the woman and he says, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Period. And, and the New American Standard has it correct when they, when they make, put a period there and in the quotes. That's the last thing that, that Adam says. And then there's this statement. For this cause a man shall leave, uh, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Well, who's saying that? It's not God. It's not Adam. It's Moses. Moses is telling the Israelites that God set a pattern here. Now, you Israelites, for this reason, this is why a man shall leave his father and mother. God's not talking about that. God's not saying that. Moses is saying that under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, he's making an applicational point. The reason I go back to that is just one example of many I could show of how there will be an event and then... Moses is going to insert, under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, Moses is going to insert an applicational point to remind the reader of what has been going on. And that's what happens in Genesis 15.6. Genesis 15.6 does not say, then he believed, or even, and he believed. The NIV correctly translates this by leaving out, by leaving the Vav untranslated. Many times it should be left untranslated. The way you should read this is simply Abram, or he believed in the Lord, and he, God, reckoned it to him or imputed it to him as righteousness. Now, because it is a perfect tense, it is past action. So we're not saying, this text is not saying that it is in Genesis 15 that Abraham is saved. Now, almost every commentator... Almost every preacher that you listen to goes to Genesis 15:6 and talks about this as the point at which Abraham is saved. But Abraham was saved back in Ur of the Chaldees. Abraham was saved before God gave him the covenant in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham has already been saved, and Moses is simply reminding us at this point, and that's the thrust of the Hebrew grammar, he is reminding us at this point that Abraham had believed God and it was imputed to him as righteousness and it's on the basis of that's imputed righteousness that God is continuing to bless Abraham. 
This is the point I keep making over and over again, and that is that God's blessing in the life of the believer is not based on what you do. That's legalism. When you are saved, God imputes to you perfect righteousness. Well, up here is God. God is perfect righteousness and absolute justice. And when God looks down on you as the believer, He sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. This is not experiential righteousness. This is your positional righteousness in Christ. And it is on the basis of that that what the righteousness of God approves, the justice of God blesses. So God's blessing towards you is not based on your obedience. It is based on the perfect righteousness you possess. Now, this is the first kind of grace in the believer's life, which is logistical grace, that God is going to supply everything you need to live physically and to advance spiritually, that is Bible doctrine, on the basis of what you have in terms of perfect righteousness. But there's also experiential righteousness. And that is that as you advance in the spiritual life, God has already decreed a certain number, we'll put X up there for a variable, X number of blessings to you, but God is not going to bless you beyond your capacity. He doesn't bless you because of what you do, but as you advance in the spiritual life, and you advance in terms of experiential righteousness, then God is going to, at, those point, at that point, distribute those blessings to you because now you're ready for them. Just as you as a parent may have certain things you want to give your children, but you're not going to give them, if you are a wise parent, you're not going to give those things to those children until they're ready. Because you know that if you give them to them too soon, either they won't appreciate them, they will misuse them, they will mistreat them, and, or they won't be ready for them. So you wait until that child reaches a certain level of maturity before you give it to them. You're not giving it to them because of what they do. You're giving it to, you've always been intending to give it to them based on who and what you are as a parent and based upon your own love and your own grace. You're giving it to them because of who you are, not because of what they've done, but you're going to wait until they have reached a maturity level to appreciate it and use it. Otherwise, you know it will be fruitless and it will be misused and abused. So that's the role of, of experiential righteousness. And that's the point that is being made here in Genesis. That back here in Ur of the Chaldees, Abraham trusted Christ and was saved. He trusted in the promise of the Messiah, the future. He trusted and he was saved. Then he advanced spiritually and he did what God told him to do and he continued to trust God and we'll see this later on and he grew by means of faith. This is in Romans chapter 4:19. He grew by means of faith and he did not waver in unbelief. He did not waver at the promises of God, but he continued to trust God, faith rest drill, and he advanced spiritually. So God comes to him as he reaches a certain point and says, "Abraham, I'm going to give you a covenant and I'm going to promise you three th things, land, seed, and blessing. And then in Genesis 15, he, he becomes more specific with that promise and said, the seed is going to come from your own loins. You're going to have a child. And Moses reminds us that Abraham, back there in Ur, had believed God and it was imputed to him as righteousness. And that's the basis for everything else in Abraham's life, is that imputation of righteousness at salvation. Now that we have seen that, let's jump forward to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, and we will just do a cursory read-through of the chapter. Romans 4 expands much of the thought that is found in Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. Romans 4 expands it in much more detail and brings in a lot of other points. And three times in this chapter the Apostle Paul references Genesis 15.6. It's fundamental to understand everything that Paul has to say in Romans chapter 4. So it begins, What then shall we say that Abraham our forefather, our forefather according to the flesh, that is, as a Jew, he is our forefather, he is the father of the Jewish race, he is our genetic father, what shall we say that Abraham has found? 
verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, hypothetical condition, debater's technique here, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Now, notice this. Pay close attention to this. We're going to come back to this when we get over to James 2 in a little while. Paul is not saying that there's no justification by works here. He is saying that if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast he has something to boast about but not before God. He is not saying there's not something for Moses to boast about. I mean for Abraham to boast about. Abraham has been obedient. That's good. It has a it has a role to play but not before God. This is not the basis of his standing before God. It has a role to play. He's not denying that justification by works has nothing. See, James is going to say there is a justification by works. And we're going to understand what that means in a little bit. But I want to make it clear here that Paul is not saying there's no justification by works. He's saying that justification by works has nothing for the person to boast about before God. It doesn't relate to our eternal standing before God. It is not... The believer has two, relate, two spheres of relationship. Number one is toward God, and number two is toward man. Let me roll, scroll down here so I get a full sheet of plastic. God and man. Here's a believer. What Paul is saying is that there's nothing to boast about before God. Our works don't give us any credibility before God. God does not give us approval based upon our works. That's not the basis for our justification. It is a basis for our testimony before man. But that's a different issue. So he's not denying, he doesn't deny it, but that's not the point that he's talking about. That is the point that James is going to come back to talk about. And my point here is simply when we get to James, James is not contradicting Romans because they're talking about two different aspects of man's relationship. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. But what does Scripture say? And then we have our quote from Genesis 15:6, And Abraham believed God, and it was imputed to him as righteousness. He goes on to explain what this means. Now, to the one who works, notice here we have a contrast. We're going to compare and contrast two different people. To the one who works, his wage is what is due him. So he's earned something. He's earned his payment. His wage is not reckoned as a as a favor. And the Greek word here for favor is the Greek word charis. C-H-A-R-I-S which is normally translated and should be translated here grace to get the point. Now to the one who works if he re- his wage let's paraphrase that the, the payment he receives is not considered grace but what is due. You see, it's clear contrast. It's what is due. It's earned. If he does something, and that's the basis for for his acquisition of anything from God, then it's earned and it's not grace. He he juxtaposes the two absolutely. But to the one who does not work, so over here it's not work. Work is tied to wage and earning, and not working is the sphere of faith. But to the one who does not work, but believes. So there's a contrast between works and faith. Works and faith. Now, there are some people who want to come in and say that because you exercise your volition, that's a work. But you always have to let the Bible define your terminology. You can't go out here and some form of abstract thought and say, well, I do something because I make a choice, so therefore, because I use the word do, that that means works, and so therefore, faith must involve works. Now, I'm going to go back and read this into the Bible. No, you can't do that. That's a 
false methodology, and there are people who are doing that today. You have to let the Bible define what the terms mean. And it's very clear from Romans 4, 4, and 5 that faith, belief and faith, are contrasted with works and wages. You don't earn it. Why? Because here, all of the merit is in the one who works. But with faith, all of the merit is in the object of worth. The object who performs all of the work. So, the Bible knows nothing of a faith that is meritorious. Throughout the Scriptures, from the Apostle Paul to James to Peter, throughout, from from John, we'll see it in John 3 this morning, faith is non-meritorious. But to the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies, that is, who declares righteous the ungodly, His faith, is imputed as righteousness. What? What happens? Let's look at the mechanics. At the moment of faith, you go positive to the gospel and you trust in Christ. At that moment, God the Holy Spirit takes that faith and makes it efficacious for salvation so that the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to the believer and he now has positionally the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is going to use another illustration in verse 6 from David. Just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not impute to him. Why? What's going on here? We studied this a little bit back in Galatians chapter 2. At the point of salvation, at the point of the cross, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, all of our personal sins, P.S., all of our personal sins are imputed to Christ. They're not imputed to us. Sins are not the issue. Every time you listen to some evangelist, you're going to hear them make an issue out of your sins. But the Bible does not make an issue out of your sins. The issue is not your sin. Your sin was paid for completely and totally at the cross by Jesus Christ. It's not your failures that are the issue. The issue is whether or not you put your faith alone in Christ alone. That's all that this demands. So personal sins are poured out on Jesus Christ at the cross. And because of that, we can say, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account, because then the perfect righteousness of Christ is imputed to the believer. Verse 9, is this blessing then upon the circumcised? Now we're really we're going to drive this point home. This is the same argument he uses in Galatians 3. Remember what the Judaizers were saying? That you're justified because you're obeying the law. And part of the law specifically was circumcision. You've got to be circumcised in order to be saved because this brings you under the Abrahamic covenant. Now this is how Paul places the argument here in Romans 4. Is the blessing then upon the circumcised? or upon the uncircumcised also. In other words, Jew and Gentile. For we say, now he quotes Genesis 15:6 again, faith was imputed to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it imputed? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Well, it happened back in Ur of the Chaldees, before he was circumcised. That doesn't happen until about Genesis chapter 17. Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Verse 11, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith. See, circumcision was a sign that he had already received justification and was now part and and now received the, the Abrahamic covenant and was in a special relationship with God. A seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised. What's the point? If Abraham was declared righteous before he was circumcised, then no one has the right to come along and say you have to be circumcised or use the Mosaic law or apply the Mosaic law in any way in order to be saved. Abraham was saved 600 years before there was a Mosaic law. Abraham was saved five or six years, maybe even ten years, before he was ever circumcised. 
Salvation is not related to circumcision or the Mosaic law. Salvation, justification, comes prior to any of that. And this illustrates the fact that Abraham then can be the father of all who believe, that is, Jew and Gentile, without being circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them. And the father of circumcision to those who, are not, only, not, who not only are of the circumcision, that is, Jews, but who also follow in the steps of the faith, which our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. In other words, Gentiles become heirs of Abraham by following in his steps of faith alone in Christ alone. Now let's go on. Verse 13. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Once again, you get this contrast. The Bible says there's only two options. No matter how else you want to phrase it, no matter what kind of semantics the preacher uses, there's only two options. It's either legalism or grace. It's either by means of the Holy Spirit or by the flesh. There's no third option. There's no in-between way. It's one or the other. You are either maturing by means of the God, the Holy Spirit, or you're trying to advance by means of the flesh. You're either doing it on the basis of grace and faith, or you're doing it on the basis of your own works and the law. Verse 13, For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness which comes by faith. That's the purpose of that objective genitive. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. Two options, law and faith. If it's by law, it nullifies faith and nullifies the promise. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. Verse 16, for this reason it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace in order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Now, I'm not leaving Romans 4, but I want you to hold your place there and turn to James 2. James chapter 2. Now, we will cover all of this again when we get to James 2 on Wednesday night, but that won't be for several more months. I want you to understand why I'm doing this. The most critical issue facing conservative Christians today is understanding grace. Understanding the free grace offer of salvation. We have a major battle that we are fighting today called Lordship Salvation that is dominating the airwaves and dominating the printed word of Christian literature. People are so afraid that if you commit some sin that, you're, that you weren't truly saved. How do you know that you're saved? How do you know that your righteousness is adequate? That's the question Nicodemus is going to ask Jesus in the second hour this morning. We have to understand these issues. They're fundamental to everything else in the spiritual life. Everything flows from this. That's what we're going to see in Galatians, and we're going to see it in James. You have to have both feet firmly planted in grace orientation, or you will never progress in the spiritual life. This has been misunderstood and distorted time and time again in church history, and it is rearing its ugly head again in our generation, and we must make these things absolutely clear. That's why I'm teaching John James and Galatians, they reinforce one another to make sure we really understand this so vital issue. James chapter 2 begins in verse 14, asking the question, What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith but he has no works, can that faith save him? The first question we have to ask ourselves is what kind of salvation are we talking about in this passage? In American evangelical idiom, we tend to use the word saved in only one sense, and that is at the cross. Are you saved, brother? And what we mean by that is, are you going to spend eternity in heaven or in hell? But the Bible uses the word saved or the Greek word sozo in three different senses. That's S-O-Z-O. 
in three different senses. We can be saved from phase one, the penalty of sin, which means that our eternal destiny is in heaven and not in hell. Phase two salvation is salvation from the presence or from the penalty of sin, excuse me, from the power of sin, and that is sanctification. As under the filling of the Holy Spirit and under Bible doctrine, through the application of Bible doctrine and the filling of the Holy Spirit, we can advance spiritually by what? Putting to death the deeds of the flesh, Romans 6. That means that we have positive volition, that instead of sinning, when we go through tests and taking the easy way out through temptation and yielding to the lust of the flesh and all of that, we're going to apply Bible doctrine and advance. So we are freed from the power of sin as we advance spiritually. That is phase two salvation. And then phase three salvation is that we are saved from the presence of sin because we're glorified, absent from the body, face to face with the Lord. In a resurrection body, there's no sin nature, so we're saved from the presence of the Lord. So saved is used in one of three tenses, and you have to always address the passage, what salvation is this? Now, what is just, just for those of you who haven't been to James on Wednesday night, when James says, what use is it, my brethren, he's emphasizing the point that we're all saved here. I'm a believer and you're a believer, and because of that we're one in Christ, and so we're brothers in Christ. This is a technical term he uses over and over again. My, my brethren and my beloved brethren, he uses again and again throughout James to emphasize that he's talking to believers. So he's not talking about phase one salvation. He's talking about phase two salvation, and what benefit is your faith, that is the faith that you have back here at salvation, what benefit of that is that faith to you in phase two? Is it a benefit or is it useless? That's what he means by dead faith. Is a useless faith. And he's going to illustrate what he means by useful faith and, and a dead faith with two people from the Old Testament, and one of which is Abraham. So we come down to verse 21, and he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Wow. Wow. Scratch your head and you say, I thought we just got through learning in, in Galatians 2.16 and in Romans 4 that we're justified by faith and not by works. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? Wait a minute. Before Genesis 12, Abraham is in Ur of the Chaldees. Genesis 12, he's called out of Ur of the Chaldees, and he's given the threefold promise of land, seed, and blessing. Genesis 15, the promise of the seed is given in a more fuller way, and Abraham trusts God, and it's counted to him as righteousness. That's quoted there, but it's a reminder that way back here in Genesis, before Genesis 12, Abraham had been saved, phase one salvation. So in Genesis 15, this is a reference back to his prior salvation. But it's not until we get to Genesis chapter 22 that Abraham offers up Isaac. And see, this is a return to the basic issue in James, which is how do you handle trials and tests of your faith? Because this is the major test of Abraham's faith. It is the phase one faith that James is talking about, and how is that vital now to your spiritual growth? James says you had faith, Abraham had faith when he was justified by God before he left Ur of the Chaldees. Now, through, through one instance after another, he is maturing as a believer until he, until he reaches this ultimate test in Genesis 22 to advance him to spiritual adulthood. And the issue is, are you going to trust God and offer your son Isaac as a sacrifice, this is the seed that was promised. Are you going to continue to trust God to provide the fulfillment of that promise and kill your own son or not? And, of course, God stayed his hand before he killed Isaac and provided a substitute in the ram that was caught, which is a picture of Christ as our substitute. So, when it says here, was not Abraham our father justified by works, it's not talking about phase one justification before God, but it's talking about... Uh, the development of that justification faith in phase two 
as the basis for our spiritual life and our spiritual growth. That's the point he makes in verse 22. It's a justification or a visible evidence, outward evidence before man of that inward faith that was there from the moment of faith alone in Christ alone. Verse 22, you see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was, and there's that word that's always translated perfect and never should be, it's, it's teleao, and it means was brought to completion or was brought to maturity. Faith was brought to maturity, and the scripture was fulfilled which says, and Abraham trusted God and it was accounted or imputed to him as righteousness and he was called the friend of God. The scripture was, was, that word there is used again, teleao, was brought to completion. There's an advance here, the faith, that beginning faith that got him saved, phase one salvation, imputed righteousness, as he advanced, he matured by one test after another, James 1, 2 through 4, until it is brought to completion by ultimate test. Now, to show that, turn back to Romans chapter 4, Verse 22, and we'll wrap up very quickly here. Romans chapter 4, we can't leave this. Romans chapter 4, verse 17. Romans 4, Paul continues his argument that Abraham is the father of all of us. Circumcision is not the point, it's by faith. Verse 17, as it is written, A father of many nations I have made you in the sight of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead. And specifically this refers to sexual death here. Remember there are six different kinds of death in the scripture. There's physical death, spiritual death, sexual death, eternal death, positional death. Well, this is referring to Abraham's sexual death. He's 99 years old before he has Isaac. He he had been impotent for, for probably 20 or 30 years and unable to... Uh, produce any offspring. Verse 18, so God is the one who gives life to the death, and that's just as God gave physical life to, uh, sexual life to Abraham and gave life to Isaac when Abraham was dead. This is a picture of regeneration, that it is God who gives us life and eternal life, uh, spiritual life, so that we can have an eternal relationship with him. Verse 18, in hope against hope, he believed in order that he might become a a father of many nations. And now the, the point of this in the grammar is in hope against hope. It's here, there, here, there. He advances from one situation to another. He has the opportunity to use faith and trust God and to grow incrementally as he advances through the, through the use of faith rest drill, mixing the promises of God with faith and hope against hope. In confidence against confidence, confidence based upon the Word of God, in order that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. So he's mixing faith with the promises, and he advances. And without becoming weak in faith. So he starts off here with the faith that justifies, imputes righteousness to him, and then he advances in the spiritual life by means of the faith rest drill. And Paul says, and he did not become weak in faith. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. So he looks, he's 100, Sarah's 90, and he says, you know, there's no way physically. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but This is the phrase I'm getting to. He grew strong in faith. Now, let's go back to James. Don't turn there. James says his faith is matured over here in the incident in chapter 22 with the sacrifice of Isaac. But Paul, in Romans 4, is looking at the events around Genesis 15 and saying that it's growth by means of faith. It culminates here. It's brought to completion, James says, in in, in chapter 22, But we see its advance referred to by Paul in Romans 4 in respect to the promise of God. He did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong by means of faith, giving glory to God 
And being fully assured with what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore also, and here's our third reference to Genesis 15:6 in this chapter. Therefore also, it was imputed to him as righteousness. It is that righteous standing back here at justification. It is on the basis of our positional righteousness in Christ that comes by faith alone that gives us the impetus to go forward in the spiritual life. It's not your works. It's all on the basis of faith. That's what Paul is saying right here. He quotes this verse a third time over and again. What is it that advance, that gives the believer the basis to advance in the spiritual life? Paul says it in verse 22. It was reckoned to him, the faith reckoned to him as righteousness. James says it in James 2, uh, 22 and 23. Now, and then Paul comes back now. Not for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be imputed as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. So the whole point is, in all of this, that it is faith alone. It always has been faith alone, and it always will be faith alone. And it is the faith alone at salvation that gives us that standing before God because of our positional righteousness. And it is that that is what is the, the basis to use that faith as a living faith to continue to see it grow by mixing Faith with the promises of God, using the faith rest grill, learning doctrine, applying doctrine, and then we pass the tests as, as Abraham did, and we advance to spiritual maturity. And that's how all of this is brought together, and we see it through this one verse, Genesis 15:6, and how it is used in these three important passages of Romans, Romans 4, Galatians 3, and James 2. With our head bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you for these remarkable things that we see in the Scriptures and how precise your word is from the precise usage of the grammar in the Hebrew of Genesis 15:6, which tells us that Abraham was saved before he ever left Ur of the Chaldees. And that's when uh, righteousness was imputed to him and that everything else in his life was based on that original imputed righteousness. And he never wavered in faith, and he continued to utilize faith. And it was never on the basis of law, for law had not been given, but it was on the basis of faith alone in your promises. May that encourage us, Father, to learn your promises as they apply to us, that we too may advance from faith to faith, from test to test, that we may pursue spiritual maturity, spiritual adulthood, and bring maximum glory to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.